Today is the 10th of January, 2015, and this is episode 177. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. I'm really open with where you guys want to go with this conversation. I thought that RazorCoin was like kind of the overarching project, and then these other projects were projects of RazorCoins, or they were being done by that team. But Bashir was saying that's not really the case. So how do you want to approach this? The key thing is that we have a network of companies and individuals, which is called the RazorMine Network. You've got very smart people like Ahmed, less smart people like myself, others across the world who kind of connect together. Sometimes they have companies and they provide us with particular services and things. Not this last year, but the year before, actually. We did some work on the Bitcoin stack. And Ahmed, I think, is probably better to talk about that when we actually you know, go into the interview. Because he you know, and I worked together on creating, I think, the first like professional cryptocurrency factory. And that's really where the Razorkind project kind of took off. And I think he can talk about some of the challenges and things that we had there. But the technology that came out of that was that we were able to build things like custom blockchains and the entire structure of cryptocurrency itself. And then um, late last year, I kind of took a lot of the stuff that we had learned over that period, combined it with my own knowledge of AI, scaling technology, that kind of thing. And uh, then, you know, we came up with DNOS, which is basically a decentralized operating system. It's a decentralized desktop which is secure and uh, NSA-proof, and it runs off of a blockchain at the back end, so it's trustless. It solves several problems in one go, and it's supposed to be kind of a native Bitcoin interface as well. People can buy and sell stuff with it. There's Bitcoin subscriptions and things built in there. You've got stuff in there for Eris and Ethereum and a lot of the other stacks, and we've got you know partnerships in the work with BitSim. So you, you can have like a properly NSA-secured desktop, which you can use for free. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Jawad and Bashir, two of the gentlemen behind Razorcoin and a bunch of other projects. Backing up to kind of a high-level view, what is the Razorcoin project and what does it encompass? Okay, so Razorcoin is the digital currency arm of RazorMind Network, which is a company based in London in the UK. So really the project here is RazorMind then? Kind of the company in the background. RazorMind isn't specifically digital currency, it does a lot of enterprise work, you know, financial services systems, that kind of stuff. Okay, so Razorcoin is the cryptocurrency arm. Okay, I, I get what exactly, you're saying. Yeah. And then from that, I mean, initially, we started with just trying to work out what the heck Bitcoin was. We spent about six weeks, Ahmed, myself, and a few other people across the world kind of bending our minds to it. And then through several torturous nights, uh, Ahmed and I kind of pieced together the first uh, cryptocurrency factory. And I think he was a lead programmer on that, so he can kind of walk you through that. And then from that, you know, we had our learning from the actual industry itself, what, what was possible and what wasn't possible, what people wanted, what we should go for and what we should not. From there, quite recently, we took a lot of that knowledge, plus a lot of the enterprise knowledge that we had beforehand, and we combined them to create something called DIOS, which is a decentralized, blockchain-driven desktop, which is secure for clients all the way through to seat notes and everything else. It forms a, a trustless environment for computing, 
which is distributed. So it allows people across the world to be able to communicate with each other, chat with each other, upload and download images safely and securely with the knowledge that not even I or Ahmed or anybody else, the NSA, Facebook, Google, is actually able to see their kids' photos or their messages or their bank statements. Let me stop you right here. There's a lot of, a lot of ground to cover there already. Okay, so before the cryptocurrency factory, I want to get to you on that, Bashir. Before the cryptocurrency factory, Jawad, you said that uh, you spent you know a couple of weeks understanding it and then pounded on it and basically pumped this thing out. When was that? How long ago was that? How long have you guys been involved with the space, you know, individually, certainly? So myself, I've been involved with the space probably around three years or so. But it was around two years ago that I got seriously interested in it. I think around the time that, you know, people were genuinely starting to realize that it was a mainstream thing and uh, the value of uh, BTC started to climb up to about $1,000. So we were thinking very hard about what this actually meant for our business and other businesses going forward. Rather than create one particular Razor coin, we thought we'd just you know, make the factory available and allow people to be able to generate their own. So what was the particular thing at that point that made you kind of jump the fence? It seems like you know it, co- it coincided with the run-up in price, but what was it about cryptocurrency that made you say, okay, well, this is something that we actually do need to do something with? Now, since, like Joe said, we've been actually like, observing Bitcoin, let's say, from a distance, right? Especially for me, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. I knew it was a revolutionary technology in terms of decentralization, try- sending cash or some kind of, you know, a unit of uh, measurement, which is valuable, right? You can uh, buy stuff online, whatever. But the problem was, uh, we still weren't sure, at least I wasn't sure, you know, how reliable it was. There was still a small user base. I guess you remember on December, it hit a big mark where I think one Bitcoin was worth around $1,200 or something. Especially during December, we had this very, very heated discussions about, you know, what kind of projects we could do, what we can do actually. And then we realized the most, let's say, plausible, most efficient way to go business-wise was actually to offer, you know, support, create a factory, which you can enter the variables or specifications, whatever you like. It'll build it and compile it accordingly, right? So that was actually the starting point in Razorcoin. And from there, you know, Razorcoin developed, we developed a few internal tools. We never open sourced them out for business-related reasons. And some of these technologies that we developed within ourselves today we're using them inside of Dios today. So when Jod is talking about customized blockchains or other kind of specific, you know, blockchain-related technologies, they've been developed internally, and we're just going to use them inside of Dios to, you know, offer features that isn't, you know, supported in mainstream blockchain-dependent technologies out there, like coins. So a coin factory, in your parlance, is something similar to a project like CoinGen that we saw last year that essentially took the Bitcoin blockchain and allowed you to change a few variables and then pump out your own. And you still needed to have miners and you still need to do all that stuff. But the actual, you know, the creation of the code that makes that up was something that's automated. So have you done that with Bitcoin or is this your own blockchain type of uh, structure? Or tell me more about what, what the factory is actually producing. When we saw CoinGen, it actually that was, let's say that was one of the main points which inspired us. But it's not the same. It's, co- it's a completely different platform. Like uh, specifically, we actually ordered a few coins from, you know, CoinGen ourselves, went through the source codes and you can see that it was just like, let's say some kind of product which come out of a hackathon, right? Like two days of nonstop coding, etc. 
So the first objective we did was to actually make an extremely similar version of you know CoinGen, which you can create a very very simple coin. After that, uh, we actually started to add a few features. You know that there was a few type of digital currencies back then. You know, Script, Bitcoin, and a few more came out back then. And then we started to add these specific, let's say, features options within the factory. So what the factory actually does is we just give a specific set of parameters to the factory and then it modifies the source code accordingly. It adds or removes these specific features. When I say features, I'm talking about the type of proof of work it's using. For example, I don't remember the exact name, but there was a few coins out there where we use, you know, very, how should I say, uh, unique proof of works again and other features. So the factory actually modifies the source code accordingly. And then it also calculates all the, you know, necessary mathematical formulas, you know, like the Merkle root or whatever, which CoinGen wasn't doing and which uh, pretty much any other coin generation thing wasn't doing back then. The end result, it was, we had the time estimation around 15 minutes. After like 15 minutes, we would get our blockchain or AKA coin ready. And the best part was because we could actually change this coin or blockchain however we like. We could use this in almost in any kind of application, like for finance applications or messaging applications, you know, because a blockchain basically keeps data inside of it. So there was a lot of different types of projects we use this within it. It's first started as a project as a coin generation, right? A coin factory. But later on, we realized we could use this blockchain technology in so many other kind of, you know, fields. It's actually the blockchain which actually works make bitcoin or let's say digital currencies works so you can apply this anywhere else so now all of this is based on a proof of work approach right yes so one of the you know good things and bad things about proof of work is that it gets really ridiculously more difficult to overcome as an attacker as the the you know amount of participation within the network goes up do you view what you were doing there are these like prototypes or are these actually intended to scale initially they were prototypes, the ones that we did internally, as soon as we knew that we had a system that allowed us to scale, we suddenly realized that the problem wasn't the blockchain, the problem was with actually educating our clients as to what it was that they were buying um, and the understanding of what needs to be there in place in order for it to scale. So for example, you have seed node networks, you need a block explorer, you need an actual site where people can buy your currency or use it to trade for something else. You need integration into, you know, shopping platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And also, uh, at the time, you know, we had a lot of demand for things like mobile wallets. So our problem was that we were faced with creating a set of uh, enterprise-level applications that plugged in neatly into these things and were actually genuinely reliable. And that was it. You know, the stuff we put out was reliable. The only problem was that we were dealing with a market that wasn't mature. I think you probably remember... There's a forum, Bitcoin Talk, for example, where quite a lot of the stuff was, you know, sort of bubbling up very quickly and people very quickly degenerated into some of the worst kinds of commercial behavior I've ever seen. And that actually was a lot of people's initial impact in terms of their encounter with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So we stepped away from that. We were very, very careful to say, look, we're for businesses, businesses, you know, and people that actually want to buy stuff that actually works reliably. Show us who you are, and we'll show you who we are, and no problem. We'll crack on from there. And for those people, because they had a timescale of typically, you know, a few months for building something and getting it rolled out, that was much more reasonable as a business. 
Yeah, I also want to make a, another point. Uh, Adam actually asked about, you know, the proof of work thing. There's actually another thing about the, you know, blockchain, uh, which is you don't actually have to offer the proof of work as a, you know, specific feature, right? Let's say there's a service which is operating, let's say, 10 nodes within itself, just for the purpose of, you know, let's say creating new blocks every 10 minutes or five minutes, whatever. There was also some applications where you actually needed a place where you needed, how should I say, a verification process of, you know, knowing if that specific transaction was done or not. A company, for example, says we just need a secure system, which at every iteration, we just have to make sure previous, you know, transactions are valid and cannot be removed, etc., etc. Again, a blockchain is a perfect, you know, technology for this. So there are a few applications out there which you don't actually have to have a decentralized structure. Just, a, you know, you can run it within your small network or even a single node of computer, which is doing a very easy proof of work just to make the blockchain going. Let's say the service is built on top of the blockchain where, you know, they just need some kind of transactional history. So what I'm trying to say is basically there are some instances where we had that the decentralized side of the blockchain wasn't needed at all. Uh, so, so, so what I'm hearing you say is that since mining isn't necessarily, decentralization isn't necessarily needed in all of these circumstances, uh, you know, mining essentially is just a metric. And so you can give the power to create new blocks and to perform the function of mining just arbitrarily to people based on, you know, specific keys or other types of information. Exactly. And one of the biggest things that we found was that we were able to work with what the actual proof of work was. And adapt it. So we have things like uh, POS in our internal terminologies, proof of social activity. So you plug this into a social network and suddenly, you know, you have the actual actions that people take uh, part in day to day in terms of liking, sharing, upvoting, etc. You know, those sorts of things, you can convert those into proof of social activity and then give them rewards on that basis. That was something that we discovered as well. From that, we actually worked a little bit more with the actual architecture. Our point was, no one has actually sat down and really taken a good, hard, long look at the architecture and gone, what can you really do with this, right? What can you really build with this that isn't just an offshoot of, say, the altcoin market? Let's forget about money for a moment and just look at the blockchain and build cool things with it, right? That's what we did. So if it's not about money, then what is it, what is it about? What, what's the kind of screaming opportunity that made you pivot? Privacy, security. And, you know, sovereignty over our own data. That's the biggest thing that we were aiming for and that we wanted to give to people and we wanted to give it to people for free. So we built DOS. We took a look at what actually lives inside the blockchain. We said, all right, you can handle not just financial transactions using this architecture, but you can also handle things like instructions and data and also make sure that the overall network computing environment is actually stable. How would you do that? So we did the research and we customized the blockchain to be able to do that. Then we added layers of security so that each person who, you know, generates the DLS desktop gets their own public private key pair. That signs and encrypts everything before it goes up to the actual blockchain. When it's written into the blockchain, it's countersigned again by the DLS key. So you would have to break into both the overall entire system key plus your internal private key that only you have access to through your DLS desktop before you would have access to any of the data that's been inserted into the blockchain. The data is inserted using just a straightforward addressing mechanism, which talks out to a versioning system similar to Git or Mercurial, 
which again sends the deltas of those particular bits of data across to a much larger scale structure in the back end, which kind of scales alongside the overall seed network, and that's where things are stored. That way you can just pull back the deltas and just unwrap everything, and only the people that are supposed to be able to see it will actually see it. Not even I can see what's on your desktop on DIOS. Nobody can take that away from you. You're able to use it privately. And because, you know, it works straight from the web, people can have it in their pocket. It's literally a desktop, a secure desktop in their pockets, and they can use it for anything they would do with Windows or or Mac or Linux. I understand the appeal of this, I think. Putting all of that information into the blockchain seems like that would be pretty meaningful feat. And I understand you're not talking about a Bitcoin blockchain. So we built our own blockchain, and it was custom built to actually provide a computing environment. You obviously need the instructions. You need to know who the actors are in that particular party. You need the actions that they want performed. And you also need the data that needs to be encrypted and decrypted. Okay. The scalability issues come in with the fact that nine times out of 10, when people are thinking about this kind of system, they're thinking in a very simple, straightforward, okay, it has to go to a central processor, which makes a decision then goes out. No, the blockchain is just used for auditing. So everyone has their own independent life, right? And they have their own encrypted instructions, which they get sent through the system into the blockchain itself. And so the other parts of the system, the parts that deal with file storage, the parts that deal with execution, the other seed node networks, the other, de- you know, desktops. That are okay, there. maybe the problem here is the term operating system, because when you think, okay, so like, let me give you an example. You can tell me if I'm completely off base here. If I have a couple of gigabytes of music that I would like to utilize in my operating system, does that get stored in the blockchain? Yes. Um, the address to it gets stored in the blockchain. Nobody can access it. The address to it. Okay, okay. So so you're talking the address, not the actual data itself. So where does that data get stored? That data gets stored in the actual set of Hadoop node clusters, which form up the storage basis of the entire system. So it can be Hadoop or any other. Okay, and this is a separate system than the blockchain? Uh, no, it's part of the same seed node. So seed nodes on one hand run the blockchain for authentication and and uh, you know the encryption side. I mean, like, <laughs> no, 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 you're absolutely uh, I'm getting a little so lost here, sorry. does uh, everything that a normal seed node does, but it also serves like desktop. It also takes care of indexing its own local resources, which it may or may not want to make available to the DOS overall computer. And not only that, but it also has its own access to its own file storage system. So rather than having the file storage system somewhere entirely separate, the seed nodes themselves typically have one part of the file system with them. Again, encrypted and indexed, etc. So you have the ability to move data from one seed node to another, to replicate it out to three or four people, and to pull that back in. If you have, for example, loss of particular seed nodes and data goes missing, then because you have typically six or seven different places where it's stored and the deltas of them are stored, you can always recreate the system. Okay, so there are participants in your system who explicitly have extra space that is available that they offer to the network and then the yeah. network utilizes that. That is the storage yes. space. So it, so that part yes, is, is also exactly. decentralized, but it's not on the blockchain. Okay, I, I understand. Sorry. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you for clearing that up. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com. 
the easiest, fastest way to send bitcoins right from your browser. That's krypto.kit.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is carpe. That's C-A-R-P-E. Carpe. You've got until the 14th of January to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Real quick announcement, the sponsorship system is making fast progress. We're now in what seems to be the final stages of testing. And if you run a show on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, you should have received an email with instructions for how to participate in this initial release. Nick Rathman, tireless developer and admin of the LTB platform, has been building tools now for us for almost a year. And it's quickly becoming more about connecting the dots between those useful tools than creating new dots themselves. I'm very excited to share with you the things we have coming up and look forward to doing so as soon as possible. The next waypoint in our journey is within sight. Let's get back to the show. So it's a computing environment. There's this decentralized uh, storage aspect to it, too. So I understand that. So then there is one blockchain that, that is for all of DOS. So then this becomes the pervasive thing where you log in through a, a web interface or an app interface, and then that gives you access to all of your distributed stuff. Exactly. Now, the desktops themselves are particular, you know, and clients, so they don't necessarily have to be nodes, seed nodes of DOS. Each particular seed node in DOS can run anything up to, I think, uh, a few thousand, like up to about 10,000 desktops itself. It's quite happily able to maintain those particular connections and be able to store the stuff and give you access to everything it, it requires. It's also behind several layers of security. You have CDN-based SSL, you have the local SSL itself. You also have coming in and out of DOS. Everything is SSL'd, you know, up to the max. Because not just... The actual infrastructure should be secure. The gateways coming in and out of it should be secure as well, so that anyone who wants to break into it should be deeply discouraged. The problem is I'm making it sound quite abstract. Really, all it is, is a desktop in your pocket. And you don't have to worry about anyone stealing it or getting access to it or getting access to your bitcoins or getting access to personal private data. And you control how you use it. And you also have access to a global BTC wallet with full access to the blockchain. You get access to a global ID, and you can also store secure documents and have access to them elsewhere. We're talking about getting DLS laptops. We're talking about putting it into the hands of people through feature phones in Africa and in other places as well, so that people will be able to simply use it for banking and for you know global ID and for registering of assets. This is really just a kind of continuation of the move towards the cloud that we've been seeing the last time I bought a laptop, it's actually not anywhere near as difficult as it is to return a laptop these days or to, to change computers because almost all of your stuff is on Google or on the cloud in some other form or fashion. And really, it's just a terminal now. So, I mean, this takes that kind of to the next step, it seems. Yeah, but not only does it take it to the next step in terms of giving you convenience, it does the exact opposite of what Facebook, Google, Apple, and a lot of other big name vendors are doing. The beautiful thing about DOS is it gives you back your privacy through the blockchain. You don't have to trade off the convenience of having desktop in your pocket with the idea of sharing your child photos or your friends' photos or your family, you know, details with Facebook, with Apple, with Google, who, let's be honest, Google, most of its services are free. 
but they make so much money every single year. And most of that money comes directly from the information they get from their own networks. The same thing is true with Facebook and the same thing is true with Apple and I'm sure of a lot of other big players. And it's entirely, you know, appropriate that they do the best they can with the models they have. But I know for a fact that when I die, my iTunes library will go vanishing into thin air. The Facebook photos that, you know, define my life will not belong to me and Facebook can use them for whatever purposes they want. All the Google stuff that I have, unless I pass all of those things on to a family member safely, I can't be sure that it'll go there. None of my cloud documents are safe or secure. Nothing is private. But DOS is. DOS is private. It is secure. Nobody can get access to your stuff. So how far along are you? We built it. You built it. Okay. So it's the <laughs> yeah. blockchain going? Uh, yes, it is. And uh, you can check it out at uh, raisemind.co.uk. We're hoping to launch it, uh, I think, uh, the 10th, which I think is uh, going to be the time that this is aired. So then what's there? What's not there? You know, I mean, what's tell me what the plan is. The plan is you turn up, you can create your own account anonymously, or you can log in through Facebook or Google or Twitter. You get a proper desktop. You have a full office suite. You have access to CRM, project management, shared calendar, uh, secure mail aggregation, everything really. It, it works with WebGL, it's 3D. It should work on mobile, tablets, and also on your normal desktop. Just upload stuff. You have like 10 gigabytes. And you can upgrade uh, any particular feature because it's in a proof of concept beta stage at the moment. The maximum that we're going to charge for any feature will be about a dollar a month. And that'll give you something like, say, 100 gigabytes of extra secure storage, access to particular business services or anything else. The idea is not to punish people for exploring it and allow them to adapt it to their own needs. So tell me about the relationship that RazorMind has in this project specifically with open source. Where does this kind of fall in, in the gamut of that? Because if you're charging for features kind of early on, it makes sense if you're providing them through the network. But if you're not, then isn't the kind of, you know, the, the ever-present threat is that someone will fork and just provide for free since it's, it's a decentralized service anyways. So talk to me. I mean, like, do you see open source as an opportunity or as a threat at this point? We see it as the only way forward. Initially, to launch something like this, you need collaboration with a lot of different people, and you need to do it in stages. So a lot of the stuff that we have used is actually open source, and we make that clear, and we credit people for it. The way in which we've taped it together and a lot of the internal stuff that isn't open source at the moment is just because we're still working out the final sort of research aspects of it. But anybody who wants a DOS node can come and request one for us. And as long as, you know, they're happy and able to set it up, they'll get access to the entire code base and they can understand exactly how it is and how it works. Our job isn't to restrict access to it. It's actually to make it much more secure so that other people can start installing it and using it elsewhere. So, for example, at the moment, we charge services only on the desktops. When it comes to the actual computing layer, you have full access to it. You don't need to worry about paying for it at all. It's like uh, having 10 computers sitting in a room and you only use 10% of each. So therefore you technically have access to, you know, a computer that's 10 times the size of what you have on one in your pocket. And you can effectively use those to be able to run commands, which are a lot bigger. So we're looking at protein folding. We're looking at, you know, uh, wide area surveys in real time, maps of what's going on uh, with actual data in real time using the system. And we want to make those APIs and things open source 
We want to give people access to, you know, how the actual thing is done. We've written a white paper on it. And yeah, I mean, our hope is to start open sourcing bits and pieces of it through the uh, beta stage and then to actually get to full open source within about six to 12 months. The thing I think I'm still a little unclear on is talk to me about the monetization here because it, you know, it sounds like you're kind of going with a sort of standard Dropbox type model where you've got a base level that's free and it provides some good, valuable service. And if you need more capacity, then you pay the central company to do it. But in this case, am I mistaken in thinking that the capacity you're selling is not necessarily capacity you're providing? It's capacity that's on the network, but it's being provided by other participants. So if I'm someone who is, uh, you know, offering storage space on some of my machines, um, does the system compensate me? And I guess this, uh, do, is there a token involved here? There's no token involved at the moment. Lacking a token, since there's no token involved, what is the incentive to provide to be a storage node when, you know, are, are they getting paid? So what they get paid for is in the actual services that DLS provides them, Right. So for every seed node that gets onto the network, you have access to literally dozens and dozens and dozens of desktops, you know, computing environment. Plus you get access to the ability to actually submit jobs onto the wider DLS compute network. That is a proper architecture for running and executing any kind of large scale problem that you have in parallel. And that's actually hugely valuable for a lot of the business users. So they'll be able to, you know, run this up and actually submit things like protein building, et cetera. So the more people that join, the more people get it. And that's really it. Our big sell to these people is that we've created a system which allows you to be able to generate much, much larger problems and solve them much, much more quickly in a system that's trustless. I.e., you don't have to rely on what the operating system is at the other end. You don't have to worry about zero the attacks. And because it's private and secure, you only use the system resources that are available at the time at which they are available, and DLS takes care of the rest. That might not seem very much something that the average everyday consumer would want, but for a lot of businesses, being able to keep complete security of their documents, being able to store them in the cloud, having access to them globally, including things like you know financial documents, contracts, etc., and also being able to run proper supercomputer level work in that kind of, you know, military grade security is a huge win for them because it removes IT costs for them. It, you know, makes it much more easy to work with their staff. This model was specifically designed and evolved to adapt to today's needs where you have a lot of remote workers. It's a lot of data. It needs to be private. It needs to be instantly available. You want the ability to scale up computation power. It's going to be much more collaborative in future as well. So it makes sense that as more businesses start to use this, it becomes an opportunity for them to, number one, scale out their IT infrastructure easily and securely, and number two, actually have access to proper computing as utility. It's very much like having an electricity company. You just plug your stuff into the wall and then you forget about it. Uh, One thing that kind of jumps out at me about that is it seems like there actually very much could be a token here and the kind of lacking one, you have a bit of a barter problem where the only people who are incentivized to be nodes are people who want to do those things that you mentioned that are kind of specific. I mean, like, you know, I'm a fan of protein folding, but I'm not necessarily sure that I would run a storage node just so that I could, you know, earn credits to protein fold. But I might if, you know, if those credits were just broadly, they were, you know, a fungible transmissible currency that had this value in, uh, you know, computing credits or what have you? Yeah, no, that's entirely possible. 
The option to tokenize different aspects of DOS will come up later. We're not dealing with a mature operating system yet. The idea is less than six weeks old. So we have taken it from you know where it was, which was just a good idea, to actually building a working MVP. And we're getting it to the point where we're now letting people in the public just play around with it, just to have at least a safe haven for their stuff. And then as we develop it, we hope very strongly to engage with the people that are out there. You know, people will tell us, Jawad, you're doing this wrong. You're an idiot. You know, you should have this. You should have this. You should have this. You shouldn't have this. And so we'll adapt to what they require. And if they say it's better if you tokenize this, you know, it'll work better for our people. That's fine. We can get those applications on there. And we can also talk about the actual underlying operating system and the services that it needs to be able to provide at a much more rich level. That's what we hope will happen. That people will come across to RaiseMind.co.uk, they'll sign up and they'll enjoy it and they'll keep coming back. And then they'll see that every day gets a little bit better. And the reason for us, you know, staging the open source version of it is because we're going to have to throw quite a lot of stuff away. A lot of our ideas about what's best for people is not going to be what's best for people. And that's what we hope to discover. So we intend to decide, okay, if we want to, we can tokenize this. If we want to, we can do that. If we want to, we can do that. And then when we do open source it, it'll be a set of mature libraries and a set of mature setup files and everything will be sorted out nicely and neatly. And we can share it with everybody. And then at that stage, you know, we'll have a model that everyone agrees is happy and everyone's had feedback into. So that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're called Raisin Mind for one very simple reason. We love arguing with each other. Ahmed and I have never agreed on anything. Have we, Ahmed? <laughs> I mean, that's usually the case. <laughs> so I have kind of a two-part question here. Um, one, uh, tell me about the actual organization that you belong to. Are you guys a real company or are you more of like a blockchain.info style operation? And the second part of that is, what is the impact potential? Are you concerned at all about how do you feel about the kind of regulatory environment we find ourselves in at this time? Okay, so we're a real company. We're based in London. We're actually very fortunate because we've got access to people in both America and Europe. And in terms of the regulatory framework. We have a guy, uh, his name's Phil, he's in London, and he handles quite a lot of this stuff for us. So he's been keeping a close eye on what's been going on with the SEC and also what's been coming out of things like France and Germany and the UK. So we have a fairly good view as to how to operate legally and how to avoid things like, for example, token sales, which may end up causing issues with the SEC. We have no choice. We're not like just a blockchain company. We're actually, you know, a legal company and we're legally accountable. So that's another reason why maybe we're a little bit more careful in terms of, you know, chucking the technology just out there and, and then seeing what happens. This isn't a case of build it and they will come. This is a case of build it right and make sure you're legal. Right. And make sure Phil says it's okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because he, he, he is the only person who's allowed to say no to me aside from my wife. So what's next? I mean, are you guys, uh, you know, so what's the time frame, uh, time frame on this? You said that the actual uh, first release is going to be hitting on about the 10th or about when this interview goes out. Are you thinking much beyond that or are you kind of just going to the release and then seeing what happens? We are thinking quite deeply about how to push it out. Dios is going to be released on the 10th. Hopefully we'll get lots of people come along and enjoy it. Hopefully some of them will decide to subscribe to, you know, some of the additional services in it. But at the very least, we'll start to get feedback as to what we need to do to take this to the next level. And 
that's probably going to be uh, specific versions for families so that they can secure their kids as they play online. That's a priority for me because I have a three-year-old daughter. We're going to deal with people that, you know, are moving around from place to place that may want to keep their documents safe and secure with them. So there'll be adaptations, I think, for those. And we'll also be taking requests for particular features from anybody, hopefully doing our best to cater to them. So partly it's an exploration on, on the side of, you know, the public as to what's going on with DOS, but also it's us as well, because this is something new. It's, it's a bit different from what's gone before. It's not just a virtual desktop sold to you by Microsoft or whoever else, you know, Amazon. This is actually a decentralized desktop that preserves your security, preserves your data sovereignty, and preserves your freedom. And that's something that's important enough for me so that I'm going to start putting my own documents and also, you know, my own pictures and things into it. Because we've run it through a few times now and we're quite comfortable but it is genuinely secure and it is genuinely private. So it'll give me a, a place for myself, at least, to give something to my daughter. And hopefully it'll give a lot of other people a breath of fresh air when they go online. Given that the project isn't going to be open source until it's further along, um, do you have any expectations for security audits or any sort of transparency to kind of prove out the stuff that you're saying? We're very happy to have it audited. We're very happy to have the back end of it, you know, properly sort of uh, gone through. Like I said, we're a proper legal company. All our stuff is tested. You know, you have things in there like proper staging environments. So, for example, Eris is developing uh, Docker uh, adaptations to their own system. So what we'll do is take those particular means of setting up staging and production environments, and we'll put those onto DIOS themselves. So you can run up your own staging and platform environments and your own kind of mini machines and actually play around with them in that scope as well. It's a proper operating system. Pretty much anything you can do, you can do on that. So people can learn to code on it and, and everything else. So we want people to check and make sure that our stuff is A, secure, B, does what it says in the tin, and C, that they, you know, kind of understand that it, it's it's there to make their lives easier rather than more complex. Less jargon, more simplicity, reliability is the name of the game. So this sounds great. Is there anything that we should talk about that we haven't yet hit on this? So there's Pabble, which uh, is our going out at night currency. <laughs> it was one of our little flirts with the market uh, late last year, and and. It's very much going to be something that I think that's going to be part of a DLC as well. So P A V E L P A B E L P A double B L E double B L E Pebble Pebble yeah. oh Pebble oh Pebble okay yeah. I got gotcha. you all right so so the, the currency for going out late at night tell me this story so you go out at night you want to go to a bar the bar's occupied with loads of people it's like three feet deep as a man who grew up in Belfast I have faced this problem personally I know what it's like. And let's say you're a regular there and you want to get served. With Pabble, you walk into the bar, you can, you know, if the client already is known by the actual shop or by the bar or by the restaurant, then they can give you priority based on, you know, how good a customer you've been in the past. So that's one way of doing it. You can also pay for drinks up front with it. You can basically get free access to menu items that uh, maybe aren't shown elsewhere. So this is like a bar rewards, yeah, rewards program? and also like cafes and also like pretty much any kind of club or brand or society that wants to, you know, reward its customers for engagement and evangelizing and also, you know, that wants something safe to be able to keep their cash in at night and 
we also reward them with pebbles from chatting, from gaming socially, and doing other things as well. In the same way that Dios is all serious and kind of enterprise-based and deals with very critical issues, Pavel is for us when we kind of let our hair down. At Razormind, we like to have fun. Ahmed can tell you more about that. <laughs> there's Dios, there's Pavel, there's the fact that Razorcoin and Razormind build stuff, and we do so reliably. And most of all, there's the huge challenges to privacy, civil liberties, freedom, and actually owning the products of our own endeavors in the private space and in the public space that we all face. I can't pretend to solve like 100% of all of those problems, but I think Dios goes a significant way towards solving a fair few of them. And I'm not all boring and, 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 you know, black and white. There is some color in my life as well. And most of that comes from, you know, uh, having fun with my friends and family. And Pabble helps along those lines. That's really who we are. We try and build stuff that people genuinely enjoy using, and we try and give people an excellent experience, you know? Not just with us, but also with our product. Gentlemen, this sounds, again, sounds like you're working on some very interesting things. Are you looking to hire any developers? Are you looking for any funding? Are there any other types of people who should be contacting you? Yeah, anyone and everyone. It's likely that Dios will be spun out into its own company. Um, It's likely that... Razorcoin is looking for more developers, and we have plenty of people, good people, that can actually code well. We'll do the process of actually training you guys. We'll do the process of introducing you to all the business side of things, and we'll make sure that you're legally protected and insured because we can offer that. Um, In terms of investors, anyone who wants to invest in us uh, or Dios or anything else is more than welcome to pick up the phone and come and talk to us, obviously. Um, We're looking for partners more than investors we want intelligent investors that, you know, we can definitely communicate with and, and who genuinely want to make a difference, you know, going forward. One of the key things that we're working on at the moment is to do with impact currencies. So we built a payment API for uh, one of our guys uh, late last year. And it's excellent because it allows us to be able to take payment from pretty much anybody and to convert those under EU rules into direct donations into places like Africa or China, etc. for sustainable growth in a number of different areas. And because we built it, we have the IP for it. And, you know, there's a potential to grow that as well. So our hope was that Dios would provide the other end of that. Not only are you sending donations, you know, remittances to other ends of the world, but you can also send uh, family and people that need it, pictures and, you know, updates and give them access to applications. We're aiming for a much happier, much more connected world. And yeah, anyone who wants to invest in that and make a difference, definitely contact me or Ahmed. And if you want to check out Dios, it's over at razormind.co.uk. should be available now. Thanks for listening to episode 177 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Jawad, Besher, and Adam. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.